The children may be dismissed to Children's Church at this time. And I would ask the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. We will be looking at verses 3 through 14. This is God's word. I'm going to start with verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Amen. This is God's word. Brothers and sisters, in this letter, God has given us wonderful news. He's told us of God's great plan of salvation to sum up all things in Christ. He has told us of his great work of salvation to make us like Christ so that we grow up in maturity to be like him. I do not want you to think that this is some small accomplishment, some small work that God has undertaken. It's not a small salvation. We didn't need just a little help from God. We needed nothing less than divine rescue. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we didn't need a little medicine. We needed resurrection. We needed life from the dead. We didn't need just a few things fixed up here and there. We needed God to make us into a new creation. And this new creation is more incredible, more costly, more clearly a display of God's power than even the original creation 
of the universe was. I know I've said it before, but when God created the universe, as astounding as it seems to us, we cannot create anything on our own. He did it just by speaking in six days. But to redeem you, to make us a new creation, the Son of God had to become a man. He had to suffer. There was blood, there were tears, there was death. To rescue you was the hardest thing that God has ever done. And so we didn't need just a little bit of advice or a little bit of a slight change in the direction of our lives. We needed a complete reversal, a miracle. All this means that your life as believers is to be as different as your old, from your old life as light is different from darkness. But I want you to consider this morning, are you different? Our God is calling us to imitate him as beloved children. He's calling us to be like him, to be godly. He's calling us to holiness, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And that means you are to be separate. You are to be different. You are to stand out. You are not to be like the world. This is the message we see again and again in the Sermon on the Mount. You are not to be like them. See, God has made you to be special, holy, set apart for God. I don't know what you think about the royal family in England. I know a lot of people do think about them. Just know this, that their life has to be different than our life because they have a different family. They have a different future set out for them. But you, you are the children of God. Therefore, your life is to be different than the world. God has a special plan for us, his children, a work that he's doing. So God, you see, has saved us, not simply so we can have our ticket to heaven when we die. You know, part of the work of salvation is to change us, beginning in this life, to make us more and more like him, to make us imitate him, to make us begin to walk like him. So do not be deceived. If you do not love Jesus in this world, if you have not begun to love Jesus in this world, you will not love him in the next no one ought to expect to go to heaven who doesn't have heaven already beginning in his heart here on earth. If you do not want to obey Jesus in this world, you won't like heaven where his will is always done. Of course, none of us will be perfect in this world. God will only finish his work in us when we are with him after death or when Christ returns. But the work begins here. So even now, we are being called in this passage to be unlike the world. We are to be holy. So how are we to be different? That contrast between our old life and our new one is evident 
If we look at Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses, and the first three verses of our chapter, chapter 5, it's very clear. In the first verses of Ephesians 2, we clearly see what we were. In chapter 5, we see what we are called to be. So look at it with me. There in chapter 2, you see we were called the sons of disobedience in verse 2 and children of wrath in verse 3. In chapter 5, we're called God's beloved children. In chapter 2, we walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We were walking like the devil. In chapter 5, we are called to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself. We are to walk like Christ. So you see, we are not called to some minor change of lifestyle. It's as drastic as a change as the difference between Satan and Jesus. It is a complete and radical reversal of the whole direction of your life. I want you to notice also, though, not only what our former state was in chapter 2, but what we did, what we all did. It says, Ephesians 2, verse 3, Among them we all too formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, even as the rest. The lifestyle of this world your former lifestyle, our former lifestyle, is characterized by selfish discontentment. I want you to notice both of those words. Selfish and discontentment. It was an indulgent lifestyle. Indulging the lust of the flesh. Some of this is sexual lust. Some of it is lust for, for food, for pleasure of all sorts, for power, for fame. The general love of the world for popularity. It's a life of constant pursuits. More money, more popularity, more Instagram followers, more experiences, more accomplishments, more gratification, but it is endlessly unfulfilling. It is a life of selfish discontentment. So you compare that with Chapter 5, verse 3. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. The lifestyle is what Paul was describing there in chapter 2. Immorality, impurity, greed, which in verse 5 he calls coveting. That is the lifestyle of selfish discontentment. It's focused on the self and it is never content. Our new way of life, what we are saved to be, is the exact opposite. Instead of being selfish, it's selfless. It's not self-centered. It's loving. Love does not seek its own. Love seeks the good of others. Can you imagine living in a world where everyone is completely selfish? It would be hell. But in a world where everyone is loving, 
Everyone's seeking your good. You're seeking the good of everyone else. That's heaven on earth. God has called us to selflessness, to be like Christ who gave himself for you. We are to be like that. So you see how verse 2 of our passage flows to verse 3. Instead of being, we are to be like Christ, and therefore we can no longer have this lifestyle that's self-centered. Paul moves from calling us from self-sacrificial love to, uh, to away from self-centered lust. And these two things are as incompatible as light and darkness. And here, Paul is, there's, there's a world of sins that, that reigns in the human heart. But Paul focuses particularly in these verses on sexual sins. Immorality, impurity, and greed. This could be all kinds of greed. No doubt it includes, maybe focuses on uh, sexual greed of some sort. Notice Paul says any impurity, any kind of sin in this category, even only in our minds, has no place in the Christian life. It's not simply that we're not to commit these sins. They're not even to be named among us. We aren't even to be talking about these things. As you see, Paul says down in verse 12, it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. This, of course, is not an absolute prohibition of mentioning the sins in general terms as Paul himself has done in this passage. But we are to avoid even talking about them as much as possible. Sin is supposed to be revolting to us. We're supposed to recoil from it. and to not even enjoy thinking about They are revolting and and disgraceful to God. And we are to be imitators of our holy God. And this was radically different lifestyle from what you would see in Ephesus. In Ephesus, part of the established religion was immorality. There were cult prostitutes at the temple of Artemis. It was part of the pagan worship there. And it was well accepted. All the things that we hear about in society today that we are, you, you hear about and that you mourn over were, were common then. So Ephesus wasn't all that different from Mount Pleasant. It wasn't all that different from modern day America. There were sexual sins that abounded there. So for them to be different, this was a radical change. And it's a radical change for us too. Because immorality and impurity are all around us. You cannot turn on the TV or read the news without seeing or hearing some form of immorality or impurity. We are so frequently confronted with these things that we become desensitized to them. We begin to think of perverse things as normal. When you see things that become, first you recoiled, and then they become jokes on TV, and then they become accepted, and then they become celebrated. 
that we begin to think of perverse things as normal, and to that extent we, we put ourselves in danger of falling into them ourselves. The more we talk about what's perverse, the more we curiously read stories of celebrities and their scandals for our own enjoyment, the more we joke about these things, the more we fill our minds with these things, the more we fail to see them as they really are. Sins begin to look less serious, more common, and we forget that an eternity in hell is not more punishment than each one of these sins deserves. Every evil in the world, every tragedy, every sorrow, every death is the result of sin. But nothing reveals sin for what it is more than the fact that it cost the Son of God his life to deliver it, us, to deliver us from it. That he prayed with tears, if it is at all possible, let this cup pass from me. And God would have granted that if it were at all possible. There was no other way. And that shows us how horrible sin is. So instead of filthy talking and joking about these things, we are called in verse 4 to thankfulness. We might have expected Paul to call us to speaking about what is true or what's pure, but what he calls us to, surprisingly, is thankfulness. But in some ways, it shouldn't be too surprising. Thankfulness, in many ways, is the opposite of the coveting that Paul condemns here. Thankfulness acknowledges God's provision and generosity in our lives. When we covet, we're thinking not about what we have. We're thinking about what other people have that we would like. And the human heart would... If it had the whole world, it would want other worlds to be made so it could have those two. It's never content. But when we are thankful, we are considering not what other people have. We're considering what God has already given us. We're, we, are, we acknowledge his, his grace in our lives. So it's an expression of contentment and joyfulness. But the impurity and lust is, and coveting is by contrast always needy, always unsatisfied, always discontent, always focused on what it doesn't have. Coveting, put it simply, is idolatry. It's loving this world in place of God. This idolatry can be confidence, and trust in some false god, or it could be uh, love and delight in a world above God. I'm reminded of Lot's wife and what God, what Jesus told us. Remember Lot's wife. I find that fascinating. He doesn't say, remember Lot. He doesn't say, remember all the other people who died in Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember Lot's wife. And what are we to remember about her? We don't know what she looked like. We don't even know her name. But the thing that stands out about Lot's wife is not that she was destroyed. It was that she was almost saved. 
and she turned back. She loved the city of Sodom. She turned back to it, and she began, became, became included with it. We see it again with Achan in the fall of Jericho. He stole from a city that was, that was set apart for destruction, and consequently, he was destroyed with it. And there was one family that was saved from it, Rahab. But Achan's family was included with its destruction. It is something that has caused many people in the faith to fall, to turn back and love this world. Paul wrote about some of his own friends in one letter that seemed to be doing well. In another letter, he says, having, left, having loved this present world has left us. You, brothers and sisters, are always going to be tempted to turn back, to look and to covet a world that is passing away. Let me remind you, you have a much greater world awaiting. The world that is passing away cannot be kept by you. And even if you could have it, it would not make you happy. It would not make you content we are not to covet. We are not to place our lusts above God's wisdom. So why are we as God's beloved children to avoid all these things so carefully? Well, Paul gives us three reasons in these verses. All should be motivations to us for holiness. The first is that this lifestyle, even discussing perversity, has no place in the lives of God's saints, his holy ones. Verse 3, not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Verse 4, crude joking which are out of place. So can you imagine speaking, people speaking about these sins or joking about these things in heaven, in the presence of God? Of course not. It doesn't, it's totally out of place. It doesn't fit there. It doesn't fit your calling either as God's children. That's what verses 3 and 4 tell us. It's not proper. It's not fitting. Secondly, verse 5, you are to know for certain that those whose lives are characterized by immorality or impurity or covetousness have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Just as impurity has no place in the life of the believer, the impure person has no place in God's kingdom. But of course, you all covet. We all covet. We are all guilty of some of these sins. There's no Christian whose life is perfect in this world. So how do we know the difference between a covetous person, and a Christian who struggles with coveting. It's been said like this before, a sheep can fall into the mud, but a pig wallows around in it. The sheep might fall into the mud a hundred times, a million times. It's always fighting to get out. A pig is at home there. 
It cannot, the, the, the sheep cannot be content being there. And the Christian wants to get out of the mud for the right reasons, not just because the things are shameful to the world, but because the Christian loves God and wants to please him. Verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The Christian continually repents of sin, continually clings to the Lord for strength, for faith, for deliverance. The Christian's life is characterized not by immorality and covetousness. The Christian's life is characterized by faith and repentance. Both of those things continue. Faith and repentance. The faith hopefully becoming stronger. The repentance becoming deeper. And the third reason Paul gives us for avoiding this impurity is because God's wrath comes upon the sons of disobedience because of these things. You see it, as I already mentioned, in Sodom and Gomorrah. A testimony of God's wrath, which has not changed towards the people who live this way. These things are deserving of God's wrath. Do not be deceived that the God of the New Testament is some different God than the God of the Old Testament. God doesn't change. Don't think that God is too gracious and loving to punish sin. Otherwise, he would have just forgiven us without the cross. I know that this kind of teaching is popular these days, but if you believe it, then you don't believe what Paul writes here. You don't believe what Jesus taught. Jesus spoke very plainly about the reality, the eternity of hell. Yes, God is more gracious and loving than you could ever imagine. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Jesus wept over Jerusalem before it was destroyed. And he calls you to repent and he, and he offers forgiveness. But do not be deceived. God's wrath comes upon the wicked. If you hear this today, you still have time to repent. But this may be the last sermon you ever hear. This young man who died just here at the corner of our property eight days ago thought he had a life, long life ahead of him. He just finished high school. We don't know how long we have. But I do know this, that Jesus is coming soon and that death awaits us all. So now is the day of salvation. Don't wait to come to Christ. In light of all these motivations Paul has given us, he now calls us in verse 7 to be holy, to not become partakers with the wicked. This doesn't mean that we can avoid the wicked entirely, for then we would have to leave the world. But it means that we are not to participate in their sin. We are to be blatantly distinct. And so, from verse 7 through 14, Paul uses this imagery of light and darkness to describe the difference between our former life and our calling as God's children. This contrast is as stark as it could be, for light has no fellowship with darkness. It can't. Where light is, there the darkness can't be. So you look at how Paul describes this in verse 8. For you were formerly darkness, 
but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. This is just a summary of Ephesians. This is what you were. This is what you are now. Be who you are. You were formerly darkness. Now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Isn't that striking too? Paul doesn't say you were in the darkness. But now you are in the light. He says you were darkness. Now you are light in the Lord. It is not as if you were in a dark room and someone turned on the light when you became a Christian. That's not what Paul is saying. It was not your environment that changed. You changed. You yourself were darkness. You lived in darkness. Darkness lived in you. And the things that characterize darkness, ignorance, blindness, the evil deeds of darkness, they characterize you. And if you look down at verse 14, you see that our former life was spoken of as sleeping and as death and as darkness. But because of Christ, all of that has changed. He has woken us from, the, from sleep. He has raised us from the dead. He has shone on us, caused his face to shine on us. And that has changed us as God's presence caused Moses' face to shine. Now in the Lord, you are light also. You are children of light. John wrote that this is the message that we've heard from him and announced to you. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Our Lord Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. But amazingly, our Lord Jesus also said, you are the light of the world. He called himself the light of the world, the light of the world. He calls you the light of the world also. Well, there cannot be a more drastic change than that. You were darkness. Now you are the light of the world. There cannot be a higher calling than that for us either. It's like a match lit in a cave. and Suddenly, the cave is filled with light. So, brothers and sisters, we are to be distinct. We must live in a distinct way, walking as children of light, bearing these characteristics of God, goodness, righteousness, and truth. Paul calls this the fruit of light. You might know this if you've ever tried to grow fruit. It needs to be out in the sun. Light produces fruit. It causes it to grow. And Christ, as he shines on us, it transforms our lives. And because of him, we produce godly fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, and goodness and righteousness and truth mentioned here. The brothers and sisters, this is good news for you. You are children of light, you who have turned to the Lord. You are no longer than to live as the sons of disobedience, but as children of light. You are to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And this light that you are, 
It means that you cannot have true fellowship with darkness any longer. It's just not possible. Now, nor are you to walk in the deeds of darkness that has no place in the light. But it also means that you can have an incredible effect on the world around us. Some may hate you because of who you are, what you are. Some may persecute you. For the one effect of the light is that it exposes the darkness. But it also might lead people to the truth. I ask you to meditate on that today. To remember what you were. Consider what Christ has changed you to be. Think about his character and how that is to be seen in us. Brothers and sisters, all you who are in Christ, this is good news. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let us pray.